Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. We're really excited. No, I don't need that. No. I just wanted you. I want you, brother. Not the John. You. Oh, man. I, I'm so excited. You saw the most of the team. I think there was at least one person I know who's out of town and wasn't here, but just excited about uh, what the Lord's going to be doing as we go to Malawi. Please keep us all in prayer because it's a lot of work and people are going to be moving and doing things that are way outside of their comfort zones. Um, I'm so excited to have Vernon uh, coming as well. Um, he's been an intern with us over this last year. He's done an incredible job working uh, with Pastor Kurt and in all the things that he does. Um, he's going to be leading a workshop over there. He doesn't know this yet on, on leading worship ninja style. So, okay, now you can go. So, we're, <laughs> amen. Amen. I, I'm, I'm excited because he's going to be teaching and uh, doing some preaching, and so are many of those on, on the trip. And so pray for their strength and uh, ask God for help. These T-shirts, is Jasmine here? Did I say, there's Jasmine. Stand up, Jasmine. Jasmine designed these shirts. Thank you. Let me say it as only an old white man could. I think they're banging. <laughs> they're banging. Yes, they are. Praise the Lord. Well, we're so excited about this. Um, well, we'll be coming from the scriptures this morning, if I can get my computer to work, um, from Luke chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 14. So let's stand together as we get ready to read the scripture today. Luke Chapter 4, starting at verse 14, we'll read verse 14 through 22 together. So, let's begin reading. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Continue reading. Stop right there. Amen. Title today for the message is Good News to the Poor. Good News to the Poor. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we come before you, as we hear your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in every mind and in every heart, that Lord, you would draw us closer to you, that we would align our hearts with your heart and that we would care about what you care about and be moved, O oh God, to live in a way that greatly glorifies you. Be with us now in these coming minutes as we look at your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. You know, sometimes when you come to the scripture and you read a story even like this, because you've heard it before and because you're reading it, you're not actually there, it may not have the emotional impact or the power of what it was like to actually be there in the first place. Amen? But, but what I want to kind of try to do as we 
go into this word is set the stage for you a little bit from the perspective of perhaps an older person who is there at that synagogue. Maybe they're 15 years older than Jesus um, and they're there anticipating this moment. So, so I'm, I'm going to talk to you from that perspective. Imagine there is a buzz all around the city of Nazareth because people have heard that Jesus is coming back to Nazareth. Now, Jesus, I knew Jesus when he was a little kid. He played with my children. And so we, we knew that Jesus was a really nice kid. He was extremely polite. He was the little kid. As he grew up, he would help a little old lady across the street. He was, everybody liked Jesus. He was so nice. The only thing that was frustrating about Jesus, my kids told me that when they would play hide and seek, Jesus was not good at that game. As soon as someone says, uh, you know, they said, ready or not, here I come, Jesus would say, I am here. It's like he always wanted people to know where he was. There was just something different about Jesus. And so, uh, but he came from a nice family hardworking. They, they didn't have much. Uh, they, they certainly weren't rich. Um, his dad, Joseph, was a carpenter, and as Jesus grew up, he learned the trade uh, and became a carpenter himself. Um, his dad died a few years ago, um, but Jesus continued to work to provide for his mother, and he had a bunch of younger siblings as well. He provided and he cared for them. So here was Jesus just doing all these things, but something weird happened a few months ago. All of a sudden, Jesus, we're so used to him being in town, he's gone. He skipped town. Now, there were a few people from Nazareth who saw him after he skipped town. It seems like he went down to the Jordan River in Judea, where John the Baptist was baptizing people. We all heard about that, and, and Jesus went down there, and apparently he got baptized too, but something weird happened when Jesus got baptized. People said that they heard some loud noise from heaven. It was like a voice. And then some people said this big bird plopped down on him when he got baptized. Pretty bird, I think it was a dove. So there was something different about him. But then the weirdest thing happened is all of a sudden after he got baptized and people saw it, Jesus went off the grid. He was just gone for like a month and a half. No one know, knew where Jesus was. He, he, he didn't answer his phone. <laughs> he didn't reply to any text. And his Facebook feed went cold. There was nothing on it. Like what happened to Jesus. He was, I think it was actually 40 days to be exact. He was gone. And, but after that, he comes back, not to Nazareth, but to some other towns around us in Galilee. And he comes back preaching up a storm. Now we're wondering how in the world is this carpenter boy, this nice young man, all of a sudden like a, 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 a master preacher, what happened? There, there, aren't, there weren't any courses that we knew about of 40 days to become a rabbi. We, so we don't know what happened to Jesus. We just know that he was off the grid. Now he's back on and, and he's preaching and his preaching is different than anyone else's. He has authority. He has power. The rabbis are quoting other people. Jesus has this amazing power in his preaching that's different. I even heard from some people that he was doing miracles. I don't even know what to do with that yet. But now he's in our town. He's in Nazareth. And the word on the street is he's coming to synagogue today. Well, there he is. Jesus is in the, the synagogue, and now we're, we've worshipped Yahweh, and now we're at the point of the service where someone needs to read the scripture. And oh my goodness, Jesus gets up, and the attendant hands him the scroll of Isaiah. It's a big scroll, because Isaiah is a long book, 66 chapters. Jesus takes that scroll, and he starts scrolling and he keeps scrolling, and he's still scrolling. It's like he's going to go all the way to the end of the book. He almost gets there, but he stops at chapter 61, and he begins to read these words. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, of all the passages to go to, he goes to that passage. And then he rolls the scroll back up, hands it to the dude, and he sits back down. Now everyone in the synagogue has their eyes fixed on Jesus because we're wondering what in the world is he going to say next. He just, he just dropped a bomb in the middle of the synagogue reading that. And now what's he going to say? Jesus says these words, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine for a moment what it would be like to be in that service? When, when the, the, this person that you've known from a young child now stands up and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He is he is saying now that I am the anointed one. Old Testament, HaMashiach. New Testament, the Christ. He says, I'm the anointed one, and I have come to do this work. It must have been a compelling and a life-changing thing to be there and to hear those words. So this is in the middle of Luke's gospel at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Luke is, of course, one of the four gospel writers. Luke himself is a physician by trade and by education. He's a doctor, and he actually writes in, in, in a style of Greek that's different than the other writers of the New Testament. It is a higher style. It's a more literary style. He's also a first-class ancient historian and he tells us at the beginning of his work that he has checked out all of the facts he's done uh, his due diligence in checking the records and he's done the interviews and he's put together a biography of the life of Jesus that is like no other he has some different emphasis all of the gospels have different emphasis because God is using each of them to get us to see some things clearly and as we look through uh, these verses today, we'll see exactly what, what Jesus and what Luke are cluing us in on in uh, these verses. And so we come to these verses, and this is, as I said, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And so as he shares these words, what he is doing is letting us know what the heart of the ministry is. Why did I come? He proclaims it by reading the words of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And let me summarize it, and then we'll unpack it as we go through the verses. The heart of Jesus' ministry is the anointed use of the gospel to set free all of those who are poor and oppressed through verbal declaration and physical demonstration. Let me say that one more time. The heart of Jesus' ministry is the anointed use of the gospel to set free all of those who are poor and oppressed through verbal declaration and physical demonstration. That it was, is what Jesus is claiming about himself as he opens and reads Isaiah 61 and says, this is about me, y'all. What a powerful, powerful word. And so if this is what Jesus' ministry is about, we have to ask, then what is my life about? What is my ministry about? If you're a believer today and you're a member of the church, then you are a member of what the Bible calls the body of Christ, right? And so the question is, if this is what Jesus did when he was walking around Palestine in his physical body, what are we doing as Jesus apprentices 
through the body of Christ today. And if we're not doing the same thing, there's a problem. So God calls us to this type of ministry. And so what, what I want to look at here is three elements that are necessary and needed to rightly minister the gospel. We see those in this quotation from Isaiah. Three elements that are needed to rightly minister the gospel. The first one is this. It is the proper preparation of the proclaimer. The proper preparation of the proclaimer of the gospel. Jesus says, or, or in Isaiah, as he reads from Isaiah, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. That, that is the beginning of this declaration. He says, I'm declaring this not because I just showed up on the scene, but because the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me for this task. One of the major emphasis in the Gospel of Luke is that, it, it, that Jesus ministers not in his own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus ministered through the power of the Holy Spirit. We see it from the beginning of this Gospel. Even at his conception, Mama asked the angel, how can these things be? How am I going to be pregnant? Me and Joe ain't even got together yet. How's that going to happen? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will overshadow you. And, and so we see this throughout this gospel. Uh, as Jesus, we already talked about his baptism. When he's baptized, the Holy Spirit comes down on him in the form of a dove. A visible repre a representation of the reality of being filled with the Spirit of God. And, and at the beginning of chapter 4, as Jesus goes from his baptism to being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He went out into his temptation. How? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. And then, even in verse 14 that we read today, again, the scripture says, after the temptation, after all he'd been through, it says, and Jesus returned, how? In the power of the Spirit to Galilee. The proper preparation of the proclaimer. If you're going to proclaim this gospel, this good news, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. You must understand and recognize and realize the anointing power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, for some people, we're going to go on a mad dash to find how I can get the anointing. If you're a believer in Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. The question for you and for me is, does the Holy Spirit have you? So, 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 so being anointed and being filled is not getting something that's foreign to the normal Christian experience, but it is yielding every part of your life and your body to be used by God. Your mouth, your hands, your feet, your mind, your heart. It is saying, Lord, use me now. I yield myself to you. And so the, the, the one who proclaims must be properly prepared by giving themselves to the Holy Spirit. Let me just say three things on what that looks like. Practical things. Number one, it means making Jesus the ongoing conscious primary object of your affection. Put Jesus before you as the primary object of your affection. Number two, it means developing a lifestyle that includes prayer, it includes reading the Word of God, and it includes deep fellowship with other members of the body of Christ. That becomes what marks you. That becomes your lifestyle. You grow in that. And number three, it means growing in obedience to say yes to God and no to sin on a more and more consistent basis. 
So we're not looking for something spooky to find uh, the anointing. We are saying, Lord, you've given me your spirit. Help me daily to learn how it is that I yield to your Holy Spirit. The proper preparation of the, the proclaimer. If you're going to proclaim God's word and the gospel as an apprentice of Jesus, you need to be filled with the spirit, yielding your life to him. Now let's look at the, what, what is central in this passage that I want to really pay some attention to. And that is the second point, the, the persuasive proclamation to the poor. That's the center of this message that Jesus speaks of himself as he quotes from the prophet. It is the persuasive proclamation to the poor. As, as he unfolds this message in verse 18 and 19, he talks specifically to four categories of people. He proclaims good news to who? The poor. He, he sets at liberty the captive. He opens the eyes of the blind. And he sets the oppressed free. Four categories of people. The poor. The poor is the first category. That The word poor, now this is going to be deep. In the Greek it actually means poor. <laughs> it means to be destitute. And in particular it means to be in an ongoing condition like that. That, that there's an ongoing uh, condition of being destitute or poor. To be captive. That word uh, captive has a, 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 a primary meaning or a literal meaning. And the literal meaning of that word is to be a captive in war. It means someone who has had their freedom taken away from them from an outside source. That's what it means literally. But it also has a figurative sense of the word captive, which, which means those who are oppressed by powers outside of themselves. They're captive. They're held captive. They don't have their freedom. And Jesus says, I proclaim liberty to the captive. Isn't that good news? As he preaches good news to the poor, the word he uses is, is evangelion in the Greek. That is preaching the gospel. He says, I'm going to preach the gospel to the poor. Those who continually, day after day, perhaps month after month, and year after year, hear the bad news. Now comes Jesus. I've got good news for you. I'm going to proclaim the good news of the gospel to you. To those who are in captivity, he says, I am going to proclaim liberty to you. That word means the act of freeing or liberating from something that confines it means release from captivity, the act of freeing from obligation, guilt, or punishment. It's related to the word that's often used in the Bible for forgiveness. It is a cognate word. It means to let go of. It means that now you who were restricted are now set free. That's good news. He uses that same word when he talks about the oppressed. And oppression there means... Uh, to, to cause serious trouble to someone with the implication of dire consequences and probably a weakened state to cause severe hardship to oppress or to overwhelm. Jesus says, I'm going to set at liberty those who are overwhelmed. Those who are just who, who say, I can't take any more. Jesus says, in all of these things, what Jesus is saying is, I am coming not to wreck shop, but to make the shop right. I am coming not to turn the world upside down, but I'm coming to you to turn the world right side up. Jesus is saying, if you are the poor, if you are the captive, if you are the blind, if you are the oppressed, if you're the marginalized, if you are the hated, if you are those who are not accepted, I come for you. Jesus says, I come to turn things upside down. The gospel is good news to the poor. The gospel is good news to the poor. This is one of the primary themes of the gospel of Luke, is that Jesus comes 
to, 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 to bring good news to the poor, the oppressed, and marginalized. From the beginning of his gospel, Luke's gospel, he has a special emphasis on God's care for the poor. Uh, only in Luke do we see the details of Jesus' birth. And as much as we love to, to recite that at the Christmas story, if you think about the birth of Jesus, it was kind of nasty, right? It was in a barn with animals. I don't know how much time you've spent in a barn. I used to work in a barn uh, in North Philly. No, it wasn't in North Philly. <laughs> Well, when I was a teenager, I had a summer job. My next door neighbors were farmers, and we would go to their barn. They, they were dairy farmers, and so they had over 200 cows. 200 cows make a lot of cow poopy. And I remember spending a lot of time in the middle of the summer in that barn and thinking, this doesn't smell just so good. Jesus was born in a barn. He was laying in a manger. He came from humble means. He was poor from the very beginning. Only Luke tells us that in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon uh, on the Plain in Luke, which is similar to the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew's Gospel, but it has quite a few differences as well. And that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus was an itinerant rabbi who went around Palestine for three years preaching. Do you think he never preached on the same things? He preached on the same things over and over again. And so Matthew has one emphasis, Luke has another. But when Luke uh, lays out the Beatitudes, he starts with this, blessed are the poor. Now, when Matthew writes that, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? But, but Luke, on purpose, quoting Jesus, doesn't have in spirit. He just says, blessed are the poor. So he's speaking specifically to those who are physically poor, who are without means. As a matter of fact, in the Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6, he only talks about four categories of people. Those are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who weep, and blessed are you when people hate you. Four categories, the poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the hated. That, that Jesus is saying, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. Uh, Luke's is the only gospel that, that records the story of the Good Samaritan in chapter 10 of Luke. And we know that in that story, Jesus has just said to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and a, 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 a scribe, a lawyer, says to Jesus, well, yes, Jesus, that's great. By the way, who is my neighbor? Because now he wants to justify himself. And then, you know the story, Jesus lays it out, and there's a, a man who is robbed and, and beside the, 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 the road, and he's left for dead. Uh, a Jewish uh, a, a, a priest comes by, and he goes around the other side, doesn't touch the man. He's probably unclean. A Levite comes by, another person that would be esteemed by the Jews, and he goes around the other way, doesn't want to touch him. And then a Samaritan comes. Now, the, the, the power of this story is in the, the hatred that Jews had for Samaritans. They saw them as those who turned their back on God, who mixed the worship of the true God with other gods. They saw them as half-breeds, as less than people, as those who, who were not qualified to even be talked to, touched. You can't eat with them. Stay away from Samaritans. But Jesus says the Samaritan cares for this man. And he loves him and, and he takes care of his needs. The funny thing is, at the very end of that, uh, 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 that parable, when Jesus asks the lawyer, so who was the neighbor to the man? He does not say the Samaritan. It's almost as if those words can't come out of his lips. But he says, the one who showed him mercy. He can say that, but he can't even say Samaritan. Jesus came for Samaritans. The prodigal son is only found in Luke's gospel. And we know that the prodigal son is actually a rich man from a rich 
father who asked his father for his inheritance before his father died, which in that culture basically meant this, that he's going to his father, and when he asks for his inheritance while dad is still alive, he's basically saying, I wish you were dead. I want your money, not you. So, so the, the, we, we know the story of the prodigal son or the lost son, and he gets his inheritance. For some crazy reason, the father gives it to him. He's a better father than me, by the way. And he gives him all this money, but you know he blows it. He just blows through all that money, and he finds himself in the pig pen, desiring to eat the food of the pigs. And the Bible says at that point that he came to his senses. Listen, you're not going to understand the depth of your need for God in middle class comfortability. You're not going to understand how much you need God when you think everything is just good in life. You've got to come to a point of understanding your poverty and need if you'll ever come to love God deeply. I want to read for you a quote from a man named Dr. Paul John Isaac. He is the head of the Department of Religion at the University of Namibia in southern Africa. He writes uh, the commentary in the African Bible commentary, and, which is a great commentary. If anyone's interested in getting a commentary, it's a one-volume commentary on the whole Bible. It is excellent. But... But uh, Dr. Isaac uh, is from Namibia, which was one of the last African countries, actually, to, uh, to get freedom from, uh, I think I'm messing something up right here. Okay, it's okay. It, Namibia didn't get freedom from Germany and from South Africa until the late 1980s, early 1990s. So they were still under that oppressive system. As a matter of fact, even into the late 80s in Namibia, uh, 75% of the land was owned by 0.2% of the people. Those were the Germans who immigrated there and white South Africans. And so 98 or 99.8% of the population only owned 25% of the land. I want to talk about a racist system that was there in uh, Namibia. So Dr. Isaac writes from that perspective and as a biblical scholar, and he says these words. He says, Luke's story deals with the questions of the relationship between correct doctrine or faith and correct social action or good works. This is the same issue that touched off the Reformation. We should not forget that, that the Reformation was touched off by the fact that the church was uh, not living out the gospel rightly in terms of how they, they did things for the masses of the people. There was social injustice going on in a great way. And so he says, this is the same issue that touched off the Reformation. Our faith is rooted in the mighty acts of God, the incarnation, humanization, reconciliation, resurrection, and the presence of Jesus with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. All of these are at the root of our faith. If such root issues are genuine, according to Luke, then they will bear fruits in good works towards the poor, the sick, the oppressed, the outcast, people with disabilities, and sinners. In short, faith will bear fruits of goodness, generosity, compassion, and social and economic justice. To put it differently, if you were planting a garden, would you want all roots or all fruits? The faith versus works issue is that kind of question. God is engaged in horticulture. We are God's creatures and God wants us to be whole people with strong roots, faith, and healthy fruits, good works. He says, following Jesus' example, the church should at all times speak the truth as it is informed by our faith. We are called to a prophetic ministry that is rooted in local congregations, in grassroots communities struggling with major social issues. God calls us to get involved. God calls us to be those 
who can make a difference. Listen, Jesus isn't making this stuff up from nowhere. It's all in the Old Testament. It is in the law, in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus. God's special care for the poor sets the nation of Israel apart from every other nation on earth. You've heard the, 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 the verse quoted, love your neighbor as yourself. Most people don't know that's rooted not in a New Testament saying of Jesus, but it's rooted in the law, the Torah of the Old Testament. It's in Luke chapter 19 and it's verse 18. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. But that verse itself is actually a, 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 a summary of what it means to love your neighbor which he talks about before that. And he starts in verse 9, I believe, of, of Luke chapter 18 by talking about how you do your farming. And he says, when you farm, you don't harvest to the edges of your crop, but you leave some for the poor. You leave it for sojourners. You leave it for anyone who comes along and is hungry and needs to eat. This is different than how anyone else, uh, any other society in that time cared for people. He says, you don't consume everything you make. You leave some for others. You be generous. There, there's a call to justice there in the court systems. And, and the Bible says before uh, that, that summary statement in verse 18 in Leviticus 19, he says that in, in the court, you, you treat the rich and the poor the same. There's no difference in how you treat the rich and the poor. You treat them with impartiality. So you see, wrapped up in the Old Testament law is that we will care for the poor. We will care for the alien. We will care for the widow. We will care for the oppressed. And we will be those who have no partiality in how we judge others. We care for people. It's wrapped up in the prophets. It's wrapped up in the law. And it's wrapped up... Uh, by Jesus. And then at, in verse 19 of our text today, Jesus, after he's put out all these categories, he says these words, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What does that mean? I'm so glad you asked. Because if you were a first century Jew, you'd know exactly what he was talking about. He's talking about the biblical year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And in the year of Jubilee, it was every 50 years. And what would happen in the year of Jubilee is that anyone who had become poor or lost their property over that 50-year period, in the year of Jubilee, their property is restored to them. The original land that they had, no, there, there aren't any questions asked, well, how, why did you lose the land? What did you do? No, it was simply the gracious act of God to say that I'm going to show you what my favor looks like. This belongs to you. And so in that 50th year, whoever had purchased that land and owned that land had to give it back to the original inhabitant. In the year of Jubilee, uh, those who were indentured servants and because of their own poverty had sold themselves to work for someone else in the year of Jubilee, they and their whole families were set free. See, the year of Jubilee was not a question of what did you do to get here, but it was a demonstration of the love of God. There, there was a concept that was alive in, in the law, and that is the concept of the kinsman redeemer in Hebrew, the goel. And the kinsman redeemer, wherever you found yourself in trouble, wherever, if you had lost your land, if you had lost your freedom, there was always the possibility that your kinsman could come along and buy you out of freedom, buy you out of captivity, and give you your freedom back. That was called redeeming. And Jesus now says, I am your kinsman redeemer. I am the one who comes and buys you back for my good purpose. You see, Jesus is clear, the prophets are clear, the law is clear, the Holy Spirit is clear about this, that God cares deeply about the poor, about the marginalized and the oppressed. And a failure to work, to set the oppressed free, is a failure to live out the gospel. The failure to, to, to work to set the oppressed free is a failure 
to live out the gospel. Let me say two things about that. Number one, if your life goals revolve around your comfort, they aren't gospel goals. If the primary goals of your life revolve around how I can make my life more comfortable, those aren't gospel goals. Secondly, a lack of involvement in gospel-fueled ministry to those who are oppressed and marginalized reveals a shallow understanding of the gospel at best. And perhaps the adoption of an unbiblical bastardization of the gospel at worst. It ain't the gospel no more. Jesus was zealous. And the Bible is clear about God loving and caring for and reaching to the poor. Let me give you just a, an illustration from my own life. This past week, I was asked to be on a panel um, that was set up by uh, one of our sister churches in Acts 29, Seven Mile Road Church. And this was a, paddle, a panel on race and culture, given all that's been going on these last few weeks that we've had to deal with. And they kind of called me at the last minute, asked me if I'd be on the panel. I said I would... I wouldn't love to, but I will. I was very busy. I said if it was about anything else, I would have said no, but because it's about this, I'll say yes. Uh, on the panel was a police officer, uh, a black police officer from Philly. There were two white police officers from Montgomery County. There were some black educators and teachers, and some of you know uh, Timothy Welbeck, who is a lawyer, an African-American history professor, a rapper, and he's like everything else as well. So he was on the panel sitting next to me, and I was getting schooled by, by, by Tim about all this information. It was an incredible night, and it was, I was very encouraged by it, even as I heard from the police officers talking about, number one, the reality of how hard their job is, and that's true, um, but also... Uh, the admission that we make mistakes and from one of the white police officers to say that if we do something that is out of line and unjust, we should incur the same penalty as anyone else. I was glad to hear that. I was encouraged by that. But as I sat on that panel, one thing I heard several times uh, from the white officers was that they felt so lucky to be where they were. Uh, in, in terms of the fact that where they were, even though the crime uh, and other things were less, the need wasn't as great, they had way more resources. So they had uh, more money for staffing, so they had more supervisors for the police, they had more training, they had better equipment, they had all these things, and they kept saying, how lucky we are to have this. And as I was hearing that, I'm thinking, that's, I understood what they said, I wish them no ill will for saying that. They're saying, I, I feel fortunate. I get that. But the reality, it's not luck that got them that. It's a manifestation of systemic racism that takes resources that are needed by, uh, that, that are more needed in one place and takes them to a place where they're less needed. That's the way the system has been set up. So far, so Pennsylvania, for example, has the largest discrepancy in the country in terms of dollars spent on education from the poorest students and the richest students. So what kind of education you get in the public school system depends more on what side of City Line Avenue you're born on than anything else. The system is, is rigged and set up in such a way that it discriminates against the poor. Some of you know that in the Constitution there was something called the Three-Fifths Compromise. The Three-Fifths Compromise was uh, something that was set up because the southern states wanted to count every black person as one person. That makes sense. They didn't want them to vote or have any rights, but they just wanted to count them. They wanted to count them because in the House of Representatives, you get more representatives if you have more people in your state. So they wanted to count uh, blacks in, in the census and therefore get more representatives even though they would not be representing the interests of black folks in their states. The northern states didn't want them counted because they said, we want more representatives. And so what happened was what's called the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution of the United States of America that uh, says that blacks and slaves count as three-fifths of a person. 
And we look at that, we think about that, we're disgusted by that. How can that be? Why would that ever happen? But if we look at the current state of things, it's not that different in some ways. Where resources are given to the places that need them the least and taken away from places that need them the most. Three-fifths is all you get. Well, Christ calls us to care about those who are hurting. So three things, application for this. Number one, you need to know your own poverty. You need to know your own poverty. If, 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 if you think because I got money in the bank and a nice car and a good house uh, that, that, I, that I don't have a desperate need for God, you're in trouble. You're in trouble right now. You need to know your own poverty. Secondly, you need to come alongside of the poor and less fortunate. Now, some people in here are saying, I am the poor. <laughs> come alongside me. But God comes to set you free. And, and God never sets someone free and says, well, I just want you to be set free and don't do anything else. He says, I want you to be set free so that you can go to others and help them and be an advocate for them. The good news that came to you, you bring it to someone else. The captivity that you are being set free from, you go set another captive free. So come alongside of the poor. Last point today is this. Not only does God call us to this uh, proper prepar or, or, or this persuasive proclamation to the poor, but it's not just words, it's deeds. It's also the powerful de demonstration of God's preeminence. The demonstration of the power of God, not merely the words that accompany that. So if you continue reading in Luke's gospel, you'll find out that after Jesus makes this proclamation that he is the one who will set captives free, that's exactly what he begins to do. Later in this same chapter, he's in Capernaum and he's preaching and a man uh, who's demon-possessed gets up in the middle of service and Jesus casts out the demon. This man who had been bound, this man who had been oppressed, this man who had been captive is now set free. Then you see later again in the same chapter that people from the entire city of Capernaum bring him all of those who are sick, all of those who are blind, all of those who are lame, all of those who are possessed of the devil, and he lays his hands on each and every one and heals their diseases and casts out demons and sets them free. Look, the gospel is not merely words that we proclaim, but it is the action of actually demonstrating and setting people free. So I can hear someone saying, well, you know, that's good for Jesus, but I ain't Jesus. I can't lay up my hands on every sick person. I can't go over to Temple Hospital or Hahnemann and just go through the rooms and set everybody uh, free. And, and I, I can't cast out every demon. I can't do that. Well, listen, God is not expecting you to do what you can't do. God's not expecting you to do what you can't do. But listen to this. We can't use that as an excuse to do nothing. Don't use that as an excuse to do nothing. God is asking you to do what you can do. And you can do more than you think. God is asking you to be a part of his program to care for the poor, for the oppressed, and for the marginalized. If you are, call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are called to that ministry. What can you do? I'm not going to tell you specifically. You've got to work that out with God. But, but let me say this. You begin to gear your life around practical ways of being used by God in ministry to care for those in need, to work to change social structures and systemically and, purpose, that systemically and purposefully keep people in poverty. We begin to be a part of working towards turning that around. Listen, as Christians, we follow Jesus' example. We pray, we proclaim, and we work. We work to do the work of God. This is not the social gospel. This is the gospel and living out all of the social implications of what that means. Let me conclude with this. Proverbs 14.31 says, 
Whoever oppresses the poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The early church was known as those who cared for the poor. The church was distinct in all of the Roman Empire as those who, when there was a plague in the empire, people would take their family members who were getting sick and throw them out of the house because they didn't want to get sick. But Christians would care for them. They would take them in and care for them and provide love and care. Justin Martyr, a second century Christian apologist, talked about how Christians love this way. He said, We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. He says, We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. But now, because of Christ... We live together with such people and pray for our enemies. The gospel of Christ is good news to the poor for a reason. If you don't see your poverty, then it's probably not that good of news to you. It might add a little something to you or make you feel better, but it doesn't define you. But when you know your need... And when you're in touch with your poverty, the gospel defines you more and more. The good news of Jesus becomes everything. Listen, as I close, are you a spirit-filled, gospel-soaked believer in Christ? If you are, let me ask you one question. How do you understand the mission of Christ and your own mission? Is your life being built more and more around preaching the good news to the poor proclaiming liberty to the captive and setting free those who are oppressed. Jesus says that this is the work of the gospel. It's done in the power of the Holy Spirit and it leads people to the ultimate freedom of sins forgiven and Christ glorified in and through their lives. This is a gospel that is worth living for. This is a gospel that is worth sacrificing for. This is a gospel that's worth dying for. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you cared about the needy, the helpless, and the hopeless. I thank you for that, Lord, because I'm one. And I hope that each person under the sound of my voice is increasingly aware of their degree of need that only you can meet. And Lord, I pray as well that we would be moved to care for, to proclaim the word, and then to follow up indeed the message of the gospel to those who are all around us in great need. Oh God, help us to be members of the body of Christ who do what you did in your time on this planet to care deeply for the needs of those who are in need and manifest the love and the power of God through our action. Lord, be with us in all of these things. Direct us and lead us and guide us that we may be vessels for your glory and for the, your good in this world, we pray in Jesus' name.